We are in a sermon series uh, on the <laughs> a sermon series that would be a lot easier to preach from if I had my Bible. I don't know what is going on with my brain this morning, guys. I'm sorry. I, whoever said that, thank you. It's both encouraging and discouraging if you're my personality type. Um, we're on a sermon series on the goodness of God and the kindness of Christ. And we're looking through a, a selection of passages in the Gospel of Luke that are really hyper-focused on Jesus very gently and lovingly and graciously interacting with, with, with regular, ordinary people and with, with needy people just like us. And so this morning, we're actually going to wrap up and do part three of a kind of mini-series uh, where these three passages right in a row are all highly related to each other and are illustrating three different dimensions or facets of God's powerful kindness. And this morning, it's going to be all about our wholeness in the midst of brokenness. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and read from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, and we will jump right in. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, only, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, as only Peter can. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Everybody's touching you, in other words, right? But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her, presence, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is so much kindness and compassion in this passage that is just obvious on the surface. And yet when we delve deeper, we see that there is, there is both a greater quantity, a greater quality, and a different kind of kindness than we're used to considering when we think about, when we think about who you are and, and what it, your posture is toward us. I pray, Lord, that you help us to see how powerful this kindness is, to help us put down whatever assumptions or expectations, and to have an open heart and an open mind to, 
to how you may be wanting to help us see more clearly this morning. Or by the power of your word, the comfort of your spirit, and the goodness of your name we pray. Amen. So you may have noticed in, as I read this, that there are some breadcrumbs scattered throughout it that Luke very much intends that these two miracles of a, of a desperate woman and a dying child are intended to be seen and kind of interpreted in light of each other. In addition to just the fact that the, that the Jairus and his daughter is actually sandwiching this event and this miracle of the woman being healed. This, the daughter, it says, is, is, is 12 years old. If you, most people don't realize that this is the age that about the time when it would have been associated with um, the beginning of womanhood, the beginning of uh, puberty and the menstrual cycle for girls. This is, and, and there's a parallel here with the woman having this hemorrhage for 12 years. It's a disordered as opposed to a, um, an upcoming kind of womanhood. Both are called and referred to as daughters because blood is as a symbol, a, a, a symbol for life. We see here that there is a chronic and an acute loss of life at stake. But there are actually three parties that Jesus is interacting with here, not just the two. And so we're going to look at each of them in turn, but we're going to start with this, a desperate woman, right? Let's, let's, I want to fill this out for you, for, for you a little bit too. She likely would have been a widow or divorced. There's no husband mentioned. That's not necessarily abnormal, but the fact that she had to pay for all of her medical bills out of her resources implies that she, that she was living on her own. And that might be like really freeing and exciting for today, but that's not the case. That would have made her an incredibly vulnerable person. She was financially destitute, because of the cost of that medical care. She was socially isolated, and she would not have been able to attend temple worship because the monthly cycle would ha it had a, a, a cleanliness ritual associated with it in the book of Leviticus, and so it would have been seven days after the end of the monthly cycle before she would be able to return to temple worship. Not only that, but this says the crowds are pressing in, and this kind of ritual status, this wasn't, by the way, let me pause here. When I'm talking about clean and unclean, the Israelites didn't think that there was some kind of magical property to this, okay? It was really a, a symbolic and representative um, understanding that God uses to teach his people about our need for him. So that's a whole other sermon. Put a pin in that. You can ask a question during the Q&A if you want. Um, but this ceremonial uncleanness would have also been contagious by touch. That would have required anybody um, who she had touched to, to wait an evening and go through a purity ritual before um, returning to temple worship. Now, what's, it, what's being communicated here in all of this detail and what's being implied by Luke is that she literally did everything possible to get better and nothing worked. This is why I'm saying that she is a desperate woman. She's the epitome of vulnerable. She has no other options. And she's desperate enough to risk the public shame and embarrassment of being in a crowd if she's recognized. And so she keeps her mouth shut. And she doesn't say anything when Jesus pauses and says, 
who touched me? And she knew that he was referring to her. And she's afraid. So what does Jesus say? Hey, no matter, whoever you were, it's okay. You can remain anonymous, stay hidden. No, Jesus doesn't do that. But frankly, that's our inclination, right? This is somebody who, like, we don't want to out her, but Jesus outs her. (laughs) And this is actually a really surprising and powerful kindness. Jesus won't have any of that hiddenness. He won't have any of that seclusion because he's not only interested in healing her physical circumstances, he is also interested in healing her spiritual and social brokenness. Can you imagine being in her shoes? I mean, like, I've encouraged, you know, a few of you in, in the stories that you have of, of God's faithfulness and how he's brought amazing redemption into your life in one form or another. I'm like, hey, would you be willing to share that on Sunday morning? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> I get it. But Jesus is, is communicating and helping us see that there's something important that's happening when we are actually crossing those, those social boundaries and being vulnerable enough to trust in an active way his goodness. What's incredible here is, let me reread verse 47. It says, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, just even the way that that's phrased, that she wasn't hidden, she was already exposed. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, if you were here from last week, you probably, you might have recognized that some of this language is a little bit familiar. The demoniac, in in encountering Jesus, immediately falls to his knees. It's for a very different reason, but there is a desperation in it that expresses a need, and she then begins to do the same thing that Jesus told the healed and freed demoniac. She actually does it without the prompt, though. She tells the crowd, it's pressing in, all that Jesus had done for her. Verse 48 is how we, is is, is our glimpse of why Jesus insists on this, though. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you go, made you well. Go in peace. Jesus wants to make it clear, both to her and everyone who is witnessing this, three things. First, that she is fully and unequivocally included in the family of God. This is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus refers to a a woman as daughter. And he does it directly. And after telling this story, he's saying, I see you in the image of God that you were created and I have just redeemed by grace through your faith. The second thing he's making clear is that his cleansing presence, just the sheer virtue of Jesus' presence is enough to heal. It's not uncleanness that is contagious compared to Jesus. It is actually his holiness and his goodness and his grace and his love. That is contagious. And lastly, desperation might have been satisfied with being physically healed, but Jesus wanted her whole. And that wholeness was simply incomplete until, it exor- until she exercised faith of demonstrating it. 
I can't remember who said this, but um, uh, it's the same principle as love until fully expressed and spoken is actually not fully realized yet. It requires the, the saying of it, the owning of it. So what about this desperate father? His name is Jairus. Uh, to, to fill out his biography a little bit, it says that he was a synagogue leader, which means he would have been like a shepherd or, or you know, a church leader in some capacity. He was a respected member of the, of the community. He would have led and been a part of the, the leading of the liturgy at the local synagogue, and including reading scripture and the same uh, gathering that this woman would not have been able to attend because she was perpetually unclean. There is no mention of his name anywhere else in Scripture, but he's named specifically by name because what Luke is trying to say is, like, this is somebody who you can still go and ask if this happened. He's, like, still alive. <laughs> and so we know that this detail helps us understand that the, it implies that Luke was encouraging people, like, if you don't believe this, go ask this person. He's in your midst. He's a, a prominent, respected member of the community. And it's not as obvious as it is for the desperate woman, but he also risked something in going there. He risked, he had expectations of him, he had a reputation. And up to this point, already at this point actually, in, in the Gospel of Luke, we know that the way that the scribes and religious rulers and Pharisees and everybody, the way they were responding to Jesus was really negatively. And so he was taking a huge risk among his peers and among the religious establishment to go to Jesus and also, in the same way the desperate woman did, fall to his knees before Jesus. He doesn't appeal to his position or his authority or his spiritual resume. He brought only his desperate need. The kindness of Christ, I love it. I mean, it's just, Jesus' compassion for him as a father and for his daughter is so sweet. It's comfort from beginning to end. He says, trust me, and she will be well. Can you imagine the kind of terror going through his mind? Can you imagine how hard it would have been to just to trust it all in that, in that situation? And then verse 54. This is my favorite part of the whole passage. By her bedside, he says, by taking, but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. It's like, sweetie, it's time to get up now. And for Jesus, bringing her back to life was as difficult as it is for us to wake our kids up after they slept. If you have teenagers, you're like, that's actually a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> but there is this beautiful gentleness, this compassion, and it's in stark contrast to these crowds. They're... They're laughing at Jesus' statement. Like, can you imagine someone you knew going through this kind of trauma and being like, whatever, Jesus? Like, how 
How disbelieving and cynical do you have to be to scoff at anybody in the midst of grief? I love, I love the, the detail in, in verse 56. It says, when her parents were amazed, and her, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened right after, hey, you should give her something to eat, right? She's probably hungry. And also, you need to know that you're not hallucinating and watch her actually eat the food. Like, this is not a trick of your imagination. It's not a vision. This actually happened. There's even compassion as Jesus is anticipating the struggle it is to believe the reversal of one of the few things that are certain in this life, which is death. This gives us, gets us to the third party here that is being interacted with, but it's a lot more implicit and subtle. And it's a, a choking crowd. And I use this word, choking, because the phrase uh, in verse 42 where it says that the crowds are pressing in on him, that is the word that is translated as choking just a little bit earlier in chapter 8 and is the only two times this word, this word is used in all, of the, in all of the Gospels. Okay? In verse, I'm sorry, in all of the Gospel of Luke. Let me read verse 18, sorry, 14 of chapter 8 from earlier. And this is from the section where Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower, and he says this, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, I preached on this passage last year, so if you want to go back, I unfortunately can't like unpack the entire parable of the sower and preach this sermon, so you can go back and listen to that if you want. But, but I want to surprise you and, and, and like... It's not a spoiler alert because we're at the end, so it's not spoiling the ending. But the last three weeks, the last three Sundays, we've been going through passages that Luke intends to be three different vignettes or three different illustrations, miracles that are demonstrating what happens metaphorically when he tells the parable of the sower. And this one is all about a faith that is not choked out. Now, What's beautiful about this is what we don't see is a, a, a thorns, an example where the thorns are choking out the faith and the faith dies. What we see here is Jesus personally, lovingly, and kindly cultivating and coaxing out of those who are threatened to be choked by thorns, an act of faith that won't be choked under pressure. Under pressure. And we see them respond, right? By faith, this woman had to overcome this vulnerable exposure, right? She was not hidden when she realized she was not hidden, and she had to not let the crowd choke out her proclaiming all that Jesus had done. By faith, Jairus had to overcome his privileged position being risked and not let the, the crowd choke trust in all that Jesus had promised to do. That hadn't happened yet. Both cross. Both crossed these social boundaries of, of acceptable behavior in order to lay hold not just of his healing, but of the healer himself. And both were only able to do so because Jesus is the one that strengthens and cultivates the wholeness of faith in him. See, they were only looking, their hopes, they were so desperate. I mean, we know this, right? When desperation, when you experience desperation over like a long period of time, you, you kind of like compromise your hope. 
you settle. You don't expect a whole lot. Maybe a lot of you have not expected a whole lot from God over the last two years. I mean, I get that. Same here. And Jesus knows when we're desperate that we need a little bit of help trusting him. He's compassionate even for that. But at the same time, he loves us where we are and loves us too much to leave us here. And that's why, yes, Jesus just raised somebody to life, but frankly, their faith is the greater miracle by far. And even if we can't, you know, we don't have a personal experience of Jesus raising somebody back to life that we know, like literally now, right? We We do know what miracle it can be to have your hope grown again despite all of the things that want to choke it out. Whether it's cares and riches and, or pleasures of this life, it is easy for that fruit to not mature. It is easy to be cynical like the crowds and to scoff. It is easy to give in to the fear of being weird and seen as weird. But the truth is, <laughs> we're weird. We're really weird. And that's okay. That's really great. I was... Um, I was seeing, reading a newsletter from a, a Ukrainian church planter's wife this week who her entire family had decided to stay in Ukraine and not evacuate in the midst of the war going on. And she was just processing in this newsletter and saying, like, when, she, when, when they said to their supporters and the people praying for them that they were choosing to stay, they had so many people, especially in the United States, like, why? Why are you staying? That's so weird. Don't you know that there's a war coming? And she quoted the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is weird because we're the seed that fell among the thorns. That the riches and the pleasures, the comforts, the distractions of this life make it easy to forget that we are not our own but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And yeah, that's weird, but it's awesome. And it is the only comfort we have in life and in death. I'll take questions here in just a minute, but I, wanna, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself a few questions as you go about your week, and just even thinking about what I just said about being you know, a seed among the thorns and how easy it is to, to have a passive faith instead of an active faith that crosses these social boundaries, Here's, here's just a few questions that you can ask. First is this, do you define, do you define what it looks like to follow Jesus or does he? 
Do you put a condition or conditions on his invitation and accepting it? You see, one of the things that I, I've most seen, I mean, I've, I've read this passage a lot. I've preached on it before. But it was only this time that I realized, wow, for us it actually seems kind of unkind to out this, this secluded, isolated, vulnerable woman. Where else do I assume or, or like exempt or excuse others or myself from an act of faith because it's hard? By the way, it is hard. Or because it reopens wounds, and yeah, it can reopen wounds. Or because it risks social rejection. Maybe it will. But how much are we missing out on in not hearing Jesus respond to us and say, son or daughter, your faith has made you well. Second question, do you lean on your own understanding or do you fall on your knees before Jesus bringing only your need? You see, what makes this in particular very difficult is, is we are surrounded by technology and, and tools that, like, we have... I can answer any question if I Google it. It's easy to think that we have a significant enough understanding to, to anticipate what happens in the world and to know how to respond to everything in the world. And then, you know, World War III is knocking on the front door. If that doesn't humble us about what we think we know, what we think humanity is capable of, in a good way, we, we, are, we are far more needy than we imagine. And everything around us kind of functions as this kind of cynicism industrial complex that makes it easier to join the crowds and to be cynical and to scoff. But cynicism is actually just a thinly veiled hopelessness. Last question here. What crowds or what social expectations or boundaries choke in you an act of faith or fruit of maturity because you fear to risk crossing those social boundaries, either because there's a backlash or a loss of approval or it may compound some hurt or something. Like, when I ask this, by the way, I'm not just talking about, like, did you, did you talk to your, your coworker about Romans Road, right? That's not what I'm talking about. It may be what I'm talking about. That's not necessarily... I'm talking about like how you even determine what you believe is true about what Scripture says. Do you determine what is true because, well, I don't like these people over here, and they believe this, so I'm going to believe the opposite. Like, do you really want to hand them that, that power? Or do you, do you not believe something that's in Scripture because to believe that or to even admit that you believe that to a neighbor would be offensive, and they would look at you differently? If we can trust God to bring the dead back to life, surely we can trust God to not allow that breaking of social convention to interfere with him bringing people to himself. I want you to hear, as you ask these, as you ask these questions, I want you to hear Jesus say, don't fear, only believe, and all will be well. All right, we have a few questions this morning. Wow, four. Awesome. Oh, the quote uh, I'm referencing earlier is from C.S. Lewis. Thank you for the pro tip. Um, which is, in full, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That is, yeah, he said, 
C.S. Lewis said it so much better. Um, why did Jesus tell the parents not to tell anyone about their miracle? Oh, man. You had to ask that. I actually have no idea. Um, I, I pour, like, this question bugged me when preparing for this sermon. Um, and I went through half a dozen commentaries, and nobody really interacted with it, except to say, like, one thing, one aspect of it might, might be, but this was kind of a, a guesstimate, basically, that, like, you know, he was trying to um, not allow the, the backlash to come too quickly because he still had too, too much ministry to do before going to the cross. And I think that has some validity, but for the most part, nobody interacted with it. One thing that I... So, okay, this is just me. I don't have anybody to rubber stamp this. So take it with a grain of salt. But something that struck me, especially when you think about this in light of the demoniac and, and the, the storm and how Jesus is saying, like, proclaim what I have done for you. It makes me wonder if, the, if Jairus, in his position of authority, would have used that testimony instead to defend his status instead of, like, just let the miracle speak for itself. I think there's something that's really consistent in this section of Luke about that, but, again, I couldn't verify that. Okay. Where did I go to high school? <laughs> I already answered that. Belleville West High School. Um, our mascot, by the way, were the Maroons. There's another story about that I'll tell you about another time. Um, is, America, is American evangelism as a whole a faith amongst thorns? If so, how do we practically break away from the thorns? The Ukrainian church planter seems like a powerful example of this. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you... I'm suspecting this person probably meant American evangel evangelicalism. Um, are we a faith amongst... I think, yes. We should rejoice and be grateful that we live in a society where there is very little comparative social cost to living as a Christian and admitting that you're a Christian or gathering for worship on Sundays. That is not the case anywhere else in the world. But when you don't have persecution or difficulty kind of weeding your spiritual life of those thorns, yeah, I think the blessing and curse of living in an affluent context, especially compared to the global Reality is, we it's very easy, absolutely, uh, to have our faith choked by thorns. By the way, this is why God calls the church into mission. Like, yes, it absolutely is to love our neighbor that we try to love our neighbor, but also, if, you, if we're not challenged to do that, we lose the appreciation of grace's potency. We lose, we have our... We, we just get spiritually lazy. and we, we lose the dependency on God because we depend on money or comfort or time or whatever other. It's like bowling with bumpers. Um, okay, next question. The daughter did nothing to receive wholeness. The father believed for her. Can you speak to this? Can we believe for the wholeness of another? Oh, you just did my Presbyterian heart proud. Yes, it is extremely important to know for the sake of the gospel and understanding Christianity and the Christian faith that dead people cannot bring themselves back to life or believe enough to bring themselves back to life. The only person that ever did that was Jesus. 
And so, yes, this is a father believing on behalf of his daughter and God working within the covenantal relationship that is family. This is why Presbyterians baptize children and, and infants, not just, you know, the age of consent is, is actually, that, that phrase isn't in Scripture. Um, we do that not because magically uh, a parent is going to, like, their faith saves their child for all time. It's not like that. What it is is a parent expressing trust in God that God will bring about faith in their child. Because you're born into, being born into a believing family means that your starting point is not the fall, it's actually redemption, which is in light of the fall. But you're born into redemption. You're born into a redeemed family, and that's what the church is. So how could we not also express that confidence? Now, if you don't believe that, that's fine, because thankfully, God does not uh, uh, save according to our belief, but by grace through our faith. And so, there's a whole other sermon out of that. Okay, what do you do if you are a desperate person who does not see his daughter healed? The daughter dies, or desire not answered. Continue in sickness with no healing? Thank you for asking that question. Um, Let me just quote Jesus. I think there's a lot more beyond the immediate meaning in verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. It may not be now that our wholeness comes. It may not be in this life, but that is absolutely the end of the story. That is the trajectory that all God's people are on. In fact, you didn't know you did this, whoever this was, but you totally just set me up for communion because... Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43, gives us that hope. And I'm going to read that to set us up. After Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, one of the last explanations and stories that Luke recounts is here in, in Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that, that, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed him, them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is an intentional echo of Luke chapter 8. The woman who is desperate is told by Jesus, Peace be with you. That's how he enters with the disciples. That's the first thing he says, is peace to you. In chapter 8, the woman, it says, the, the, the word touch was used four times. 
Like it's this repetition that's supposed to draw our attention, the, the tactile aspect of her interaction with Jesus. And that word is not mentioned again until Luke 24, where he says, touch me. The daughter who died, it says her spirit returned, and then Jesus directs them to give her something to eat. With the disciples, he says, I'm not a spirit. Do you have any snacks? The messenger coming to tell Jairus that his daughter had died didn't want to trouble Jesus, that word trouble, but now the disciples are troubled when Jesus just appears in, in front of them. Jairus and his, his wife are amazed and the disciples are marvel. It's the same reaction. What this is telling us is that Luke 24... And it, what Luke 24 is telling us is that Christ's resurrection is a foretaste of God's promise that by grace through faith, we can trust that all will be well, that he will restore all things and make all things new. That the story's not over yet, not ours and not all of humanity's. Communion then, it's like... It's simultaneously the amuse-bouche that is supposed to awaken our, our taste buds, our spiritual taste buds for the feast that is to come when all things are made, made new. And it's also actually a, it's that feast breaking into the present, that this is a spiritual reality that is already true, even if the physical brokenness of the world is not yet made whole. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And with his disciples, he said, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. It is broken so that you would be made whole. Likewise, he took the wine. And he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given and shed for the remission of sins. There is nothing about you or what has been done to you or what you have done, the uncleanness of which can match the contagious holiness of my making you pure as white as snow. That's the effect of Jesus' death. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. You look forward in anticipation for when all will be made well. If that is your hope, even if it is tinged with more than a little bit of cynicism. That's okay. You're hungry for this then. This is for you. As soon as 10 or 12 of you are up anytime while Danny's leading us in worship, we'll disperse the elements and take it together as a family. And I want you to hear, as you take the bread and the wine this morning, son or daughter, go in peace. I am with you. Let's pray. Jesus, so much of this world is broken, disintegrating, and disordered. So much of your creation, by and in whom and through you, was made, is just a shadow of the glory that was intended. 
But Lord, we are literally banking on your resurrection as the hope that this story has a very, very happy ending. And that in some way, somehow, all that we have gone through and everything your people have endured will not just disappear in a way that robs this life of meaning, but Lord, is somehow mysteriously and beautifully used to make the new heavens and new earth that much greater, that that is how you redeem. Lord, thank you for being a God who loves to bring the dead back to life. Quicken our hearts with affection for you, Lord. By grace, through faith, we pray in your name. Amen.